Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Whilst I've got your attention, let's not be strangers. Why not go to the website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, check out some of my other great episodes with fantastic thought leaders and practitioners, and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we start picking fights with thought leaders, as my guest has a beef of at least two both of whom have been guests on this show before, so I'm just like Switzerland in the middle. We talk about some of the ups and downs of platform product management, why MBAs aren't all that bad and might even be good, some of the problems with experimentation culture, and what my guest's beef is with doing things in an agile way. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is John Zilch. John's a platform-focused director of product and adjunct business school professor who's been described by his peers as a superstar product management leader. John's had a long career through a variety of companies, and as evidenced by his blog title and Twitter handle, Build It, Ship It, he's passionate about getting products launched. Given that he said before this call he was off to do some push-ups, I'm sure those launches will be very effective indeed. Hi, John. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. No problem. Good to see you here. I can assure the crowd that your pecs are looking fantastic. <laughs> Had to get ready somehow, that, that and coffee. <laughs> so first things first, you've got a couple of things going on, which we'll talk about, but concentrating on the day job, first of all, you work for Upland Software. Who are Upland Software and what problem do they solve? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, newish company, right? We're a public company, but started just several years ago. And uh, a model where acquiring technologies and apps, putting them together. And for me, it's a, a director of product, have a, a small team of product managers and designer, and uh, looking to replatform some of our services and build something new. And the problem we're typically solving for our customers is mobile engagement, being able to allow our clients to engage with their audience through text messaging, and app marketing, push notifications. Uh, what have you. So really important need that our clients have that we're able to fulfill for them. But you said a word there that would potentially terrify a lot of product managers, which is the replatforming <laughs> part of that. Like, So you're taking what existing stuff that's been built on other platforms and then bringing that into a new platform and then releasing that out as like a new version or something different? Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, I glossed over it, but it's a lot of work. And it, <laughs> you know, somehow, I guess this is somewhat interesting. Uh, I've done this now in the last four stops of my career, and, and that wasn't on purpose because it's it's a it's a lot of work and and <laughs> a different type of objective, obviously. But just as you said, we're taking you know some of the products that we have today, looking at what's valuable to customers, starting with some of those core features and putting them onto a new tech platform. And then over time, bringing our customers over to that platform. So there's there's a lot of a lot of product management involved from everything you know in, in terms of discovery and understanding what customers value and what we can do to make their experience better. Uh, how do we make the new platform faster and, and really improve on what we have today? And then of course there's the tactical piece of like how do we get our customers over to there and what, what do we do about that? You know that edge case feature that someone built six years ago that three customers are using. So <laughs> in a lot of ways, it, it forces us to be really good at product management. So that's interesting. Now, I think you touched on it before, like there's a lot of acquisition there, right? So you're, you're acquiring companies, you're acquiring platforms. 
and then bringing them together. So have you ever been in a situation where you just have to look at it and go, yeesh, and like almost start completely again? Or have you always managed to find a way to do that with fairly low effort? Because obviously from a product management perspective, you always want to spend the least amount of time possible building things, right? And the most amount of time either validating them or testing what you've released. So have you managed to get that right? Or are there some times where you've just really had to put a lot of that effort in? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think there's a case to be made uh, in all, all four of the instances that I've been involved in not to replatform, right? I mean, I think there is a, a conversation that has to happen, which is, well, how long will it take? You know, are we really getting enough upside by doing this? Where I think it makes the most sense is when you can take a couple disparate capabilities that aren't together, you know, that aren't available to a customer in one place. What, what I hear from the customers that we work with all the time is, and they usually start with this and they usually end with it. I want to go to one place to get the seven or eight things that you offer. Yeah. And again, we've acquired things through different means at different times. So can you take all those capabilities that seemingly go together and put them onto one platform? So I've got one login and I've got shared services and I've, yeah. you know, the reporting kind of ties together and everything else. So I'd say that's one of the, the big pros and advantages of replatforming. And if that's not available, or if that's not something, if it's one for one of taking something that might be falling down and just bringing it all over to something new, it becomes, I'd say, far less attractive of, a, of an opportunity. I'll say that it does sound intense though. So I'm assuming that you, uh, you, you do have to do quite a lot of work and ongoing effort to get that and, and keep that on focus. But do you get to deal a lot with the customers the users directly or are you working a lot with internal stakeholders on that kind of thing yeah that i'd say both you know in, in one particular case we had a an app this is gonna be hard to believe in, in 2021 but we weren't collecting usage data on the app it was built long ago and uh, that was a gap that we had right so we can't call up i mean i guess we could but it would take a long time to call up each customer and ask them like what do you find valuable we did that to some extent but we found it was a it was a much more direct path to work with their customer success representative or maybe someone in sales and just kind of almost like crowdsource that information. What are your customers using today and, and try to capture that but I think what's what's equally important uh, just to answer your question is as we're building out that platform, we're doing so in, in an agile sense like most product companies today or R&D companies today. But we're bringing a customer along for the ride as we go as well. And I think it's really important to keep those touch points. You, know, you could think of it as agile versus waterfall if, if you'd like. And it's staggered. It's, it's a staggered process, right? I mean, we're working with some customers on usability designs, and then we've got some things built that customers are actually beta testing. And then you know, I'm not doing this in the right order, but there's other another set of customers we might just be doing initial discovery with. So it really makes things interesting, but at the same time, it's really critical if we're going to get the, uh, you know, get our strategy right. But how did you get into product management in the first place then? Because looking at your educational history, you've got like a bachelor's and a master's in computer science. I know you've got an MBA as well, which we'll talk about in a bit, but it seems like to start with, you should probably have been building the software yourself, right? Not doing the product management <laughs> side. You've got a quite a hardcore computer science background. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I I don't know exactly how it, it turned out this way. I guess I do. When I graduated school, so I was a computer science major with a business minor, and I started a, a gig as a business analyst. And frankly, Jason, for the first you know several years of my career, which now seems like a really really long time to 
to not know what you want to be when you grow up. But that was that was the case. I was you know that was the case for me. I was really just trying to figure it out. And I was doing a lot of database programming, you know, SQL queries, building that with reporting, and then uh, eventually doing some ETL work, right? Basically building out the plumbing for moving data around to equip products. or All the glamorous stuff, right? All the glamorous stuff. All the glamorous stuff, yeah. Although I will say you were very much appreciated in that role. (laughs) Someone needs their data by tomorrow and you can kind of do some things that they have no idea what you're doing behind the curtain and make it happen, you're almost treated as a hero, which I, I can't say <laughs> happens as much in product. Huh. <laughs> but um, you know, over time, I ended up at, into it. And at the same time, I, I think I was getting my MBA or had gotten my MBA recently. And at Intuit, I was still in this business operations role. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I knew it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do the rest of my career. I can almost remember like the day that I, I stumbled upon this meeting between a product manager and a designer, and they were working out these ideas. And I think it was they were having lunch, and they invited me to sit with them. And I just saw the brainstorming that was going on, and I thought, oh, this looks really fun. Like they're trying to figure out how to the best way to solve a problem together. And then I, you know, I talked to the product manager, and I, <laughs> she said, don't follow me around for the day, you know, or, or maybe the next day. And she's meeting with sales, and then she's talking to a customer and doing a usability study, and working with the engineers and they're at stand-up. And I had no insight into this world before I hadn't been in the tech industry. So I wasn't aware of what a product manager was or what they really even did. And right away, I said, wow, these, these folks are right in the thick of things. This looks fun. Yeah. This is where the action is, which is, is sort of the environment I always I always enjoyed. So then I'm, I'm guessing, Jason, you've had a similar experience. Like, how do I get into product management? Like, what is my in there? Yeah, and that took a little bit of time, but uh, eventually I got there. Yeah, I came in from a development operational background, and uh, oh, okay, it was definitely interesting, kind of segueing over time into product management, and kind of almost product management was a second career for me in many ways. It's like I spent quite a long time working in development and working and managing teams in development, and again, sort of operational and support circles and stuff like that. But there was always this feeling in the background of like, as you say wanting to get where the action is and wanting to make sure that I was talking to the clients and talking to the customers and working out what the best things to spend our time on was. And yeah, I guess it was a bit of a later step in my career, but it was definitely an interesting one. But I think that the thing that really got me was that having had some of that experience in other roles, felt that I still got a very rounded managerial kind of, for want of a better word, leadership experience, because I've done that in different areas as well. So it kind of makes you feel a bit more rounded. And again, I think maybe that's one of the things that we'll talk about with regards to the MBA, that concept of roundedness and having experiences from lots of different areas rather than just being fully focused on one, I thought for me was very interesting. Hmm. But you've also got a side hustle. Hmm. Now, we just mentioned a bare few minutes ago that you have quite a lot of work to do in your day job. So what was it that made you sit there and say, right, launch day, my new side hustle, it's time to do that alongside my day job. What was the decision process there? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story because when I was at Intuit, uh, I was a project manager initially. Oh and no, that's the worst type of PM. <laughs> there's a lot of them, right? Program and project. <laughs> uh, the program stuff looked more interesting too than what I was doing. But <laughs> So I guess it started there. And, and this is going back a few years, but at the same time, when we were organizing our release cadence alongside our marketing launch and 
and we had a, a few different teams releasing code and we had to organize all the stuff. And actually it was the program manager that was kind of overseeing a lot of it. And I realized that we were just shoving this information into, I don't know if it was Google Docs or Excel. And I went to the next company, which was done in Bradstreet, where I actually started my official product career. And we did a few different launches across a few different product lines there. I, I had a lot of fun at, at DNB. We did a lot of uh, neat stuff in a, in a company that's been around for a really, really long time. So we were, we were able to be very modern about it. But the technology we were using to just organize and orchestrate a product launch was still like Excel. So we'd create this big Excel document of like, we need positioning and we need pricing and we need to actually release the product itself, the code. We need to train the sales team. We had this laundry list of things. And we'd say, we're good. Put an Excel doc and everyone's just going to go in there and update their stuff. And everyone, we all met and we felt good about it. And I was being asked, even in a product role, to, to kind of oversee that because we just didn't have resources to do it on our team. So I wasn't doing a great job of it, obviously, because we'd put it in this Excel doc. And then I spent a lot of my day running around chasing after people and just saying, hey, where are we with the legal, you know, our terms and conditions and all this minutia and tactical work? So long story short, I'd gone to two or three tech companies since then, same exact thing. Now, it's either a coincidence or the tools just <laughs> didn't exist to solve this problem. And in a lot of cases, the product launches were quite unsuccessful, right? In, in terms of, yeah. I mean, we got the products out the door, but we didn't do everything cross-functionally that we wanted to do. And if we did, it wasn't done in a very pleasant way. We had people pointing fingers and we punted on a lot of things we wanted to do. And I, and I just thought there's got to be a better way to be more efficient for the team. So uh, me and a, a former coworker who's on the engineering side, actually, we caught up. We were no longer working at the same company. I said, how are things there? And, and he said, oh, the launch stuff just, <laughs> uh, I want to like manage my team and I want to code a little bit and I'm doing the launch stuff all day. I'm in these meetings. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You're involved in this too. And he's like, everybody's involved in these things. And we're all, we're all <laughs> yelling at each other. I said, let's go build something. So what's been really fun has been the two of us, right, to, to start. And, and we've been doing this on nights and weekends. And we uh, just launched in April. We've got customers using the product. And, and launch day has been, has been successful thus far, although it's still in its early stages. But what we want to do really is not just be a project management tool, but also something where People at your organization can log into the app and see what the goals are, see who the personas are, like who are we actually launching this stuff for? How are they going to derive value from it? As a company, what are our goals? Like what are our KPIs? What would make this launch successful? Then of course, what are the different tasks that go into it? How can I get alerts and, and send notifications to people so they're filling out their stuff, whether it's through Slack or just logging into the app? And we're really, really trying to get, I think we've done a good job thus far building something that can help teams be efficient and also just feel good about the launch and what they're trying to do as a team. That sounds good. But is this your first startup or have you scratched that itch before? I was just curious, for example, what it's like to actually start something and have to start worrying about startup stuff, yeah. as in you know, funding and, as you say, customers and start to do some of the unpleasant stuff around actually running a business as opposed to just having a good product brain and trying to make good products. Have you found that a bit of a transition? Well, it, it definitely. I think that's a great, I mean, I think it's a fun transition. I'm a first time founder in this. I mean, I've been at startups and learned through that, but that's under a corporate um, umbrella of some sort. So with, you know, with, with uh, Andrew, my co-founder, myself, it, it's nice that we know we work well together. 
We also know that we want to bring on the right customers. We don't want to take on just anyone who might have needs that don't exactly fit what we're looking to do. And we can we can work with them quite intimately and understand the best way to solve problems that might align to the long-term vision. And we don't have, uh, honestly, we don't have anyone really breathing down our necks to hit certain targets by certain dates. So we can spend the time necessary to get the product right. And that's really important to us. So yeah, I think if we were to go out and get funding today, we might be, you know, that would change things dramatically. But the way we are right now, we're really close to our customers. We feel like we've got this tight community that we're building for, and we can grow the company as we as we see fit, which is a nice place to be. It's good to have that freedom. Yeah. But speaking of freedom, or rather the lack of, you've also got a third hustle, which is as a professor at Providence College. Hmm. So again, it feels like you're a bit of a glutton for punishment when it comes to loading yourself up with tasks <laughs> and things to do. But what is it that you're doing at Providence College and what is it you're teaching? Yeah, it's a, it's a weakness of mine. I can overcommit. <laughs> but I, I, I think it, it was probably more of a problem the first semester I did it. So I went to Providence College undergrads. I definitely nostalgic for the school. And yeah, I mean, for me, there's a there's a couple reasons I uh, decided to become an adjunct professor. One being, I think, to learn something truly, the best way is to teach it. And yeah. there's a few. Uh, so it's a kind of a tech business management information resources class. But we touch on topics like machine learning and AI that I I know at a base level, but I really wanted to level up in that area and some of the other areas as well. We touch on a lot of different topics in the class. It keeps me up on more topical things that that, that come up in the the technology space. And then uh, honestly, you know, hiring as well, right? So in leading a a team of product managers, if I need to fill positions, I I can go to some of the top (laughs) students in my class and pitch them, right? And of course, I've hopefully uh, illustrated the benefits of product management throughout the semester, sneak those in where I can to get them go. get them interested in our in our line of business, line of work. I see. So it sounds like a bit of a bit of a hustle going on there trying to get the no, uh, your pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a hustle. I mean, a lot of them are they're in business school and looking for gigs a- after yeah. uh, after they get out. So so it's not some kind of horrible product management pyramid scheme where you're trying to like just get as many people signed up as possible or anything like that. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I, I mean, the other thing is it's it's nice to bring a perspective of somebody who's kind of living it uh, in the yeah. <laughs> during the day, and then can come and talk about real world applications of the things we're learning and mistakes that I've made in my career and point those out. I think that's helpful. So there it, there is a definitely an element of giving back to uh, as part of the role. Yeah, that's funny. Actually, I was talking to a friend recently about actually MBAs, which I know we're going to come to in a second. But she was saying that whilst obviously the course was really good, that she has this certain disconnect with the professors because they're very theoretical. (laughs) So I think that really touches on your point around like, it's actually really good to have practitioners in doing this stuff day to day. And they're not just reading it from a book or quoting it from something that they did 20 years ago or whatever. So yeah, probably slightly unfair on the professors. But you know, I think that that real school of hard knocks thing, you know, this is all the stuff that I've learned as I've been doing the job is actually really valuable. But let's talk about MBAs because I know that we had a chat before this about MBAs and I don't have an MBA, you do have an MBA. And there's also this general, there's been a lot of trash talk about MBAs (laughs) across lots of the tech community, especially with some of the Silicon Valley companies and some of the top commentators. And speaking of top commentators, my former guest, uh, Marty Kagan, 
recently put an article out, which I know that you disagreed with, around the perils of MBAs and some of the problems with them and the bad thinking that they bring to the market or bring to the workplace. And you disagreed with that publicly. And obviously, you've disagreed with that privately. But what's your primary objection to Martin's article? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Thank you. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. Here we go. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The reason I'm here. No, I'm kidding. I love the podcast, but I am happy to talk about it. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear your your take too, Jason. I, I mean, I can't log into Twitter without reading something about how MBAs aren't right for product management, and then you know, just very, very anti. I wonder if this happens in like the the artist community, like if MFAs are just just looked <laughs> down on. And I'll be honest. I mean, I got my MBA mainly, I think when I started, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my career, right? So I started it before I even learned about product management. And then by the time I was done with it, I I wanted to get into product management. And that was sort of my, you know, (laughs) I I thought that would be my way in, to be quite honest with you. And I, yeah, Marty's Marty's article, I I didn't agree with, because I, I do think there's some stereotypes built into that. I totally get the sense, just being an MBA and, and even being a director of product management, which I think Jason is, is your title as well. Yeah, I do show up for standups and I do show up for groomings and work very closely with engineers. And sometimes there's this feeling of, uh oh, the business person's in the room. Like, <laughs> what's their angle here? And frankly, I don't think MBAs are going to build great products. I don't think it takes an MBA to build a great product. But I also don't think an MBA can't, you know, is restricted from building an awesome product at the same time. So I, I don't, you know, if if the, Marty's point was that you don't need an MBA to be a product manager, I would say, well, no, duh. <laughs> I mean, you talked about your background, Jason. You came from a, a, an angle. My MBA, I don't think it ultimately ended up helping me get get the gig, to be quite honest. And if it did, it was somewhat minor. I mean, it was the experience I got it into it that that really helped. The part of his article that I do agree with is that, and I, I've I've seen this. I've seen this from people that I've managed. I've seen this from peers, and I'm I'm curious, Jason, if you've seen this. I've seen product managers hold an attitude of I am going to write a requirement. I am going to roll it up. I'm going to hand it to someone. I'm going to leave the room, and it's going to get built. Yeah, I mean, I have seen that. I don't necessarily think I've specifically seen it from MBAs. I think I've seen it from just people from different backgrounds, you know, different working backgrounds, different professional backgrounds, maybe people that have worked at different types of companies, maybe those companies were run by MBAs, who knows, but like, that is not an uncommon dynamic in any business, right? And it's something that we all push against and comes up in all of the books, including Marty's book around like, how that's the worst way to work. And, and I completely agree with that. I guess, where we were both coming from before this call, when we chatted about it in passing was like, the behavior that that represents is absolutely the worst way to work. And we all agree with that. I guess Marty's article very much paints MBAs as encouraging that type of behavior. Right. And I don't know if that's something that you feel is fair or fair from your experience, or if you think that that's a misrepresentation of what MBAs are actually teaching these days. Yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of drawing a line that, that doesn't really exist. Well, because cliches come from somewhere though, right? I mean, you say it's a cliche or a stereotype, but cliches and stereotypes, they come, come from, from somewhere. Truth. They, yeah. they, there's a grain of truth in there, even if it's exaggerated or even if it's out of date or if people are pushing against it. But there's always something that that starts from. And are you saying that that's changed or just that that wasn't always accurate in the first place? 
Well, I, I, I don't think it's accurate in the sense that I, I don't think I, – I guess it's a problem, right? I mean, folks who, who don't want to be part of a team that's going to build a product together and really really live and breathe, you know, pixel by pixel, is this product solving the problem? Are, are we building the right thing? How can I – how can I sit there with an engineer and just point things out and ask questions and and solve problems together? I, I don't think, and I mean, I, again, I, I enjoy that part. And maybe I'm a an outlier. I'm not sure, but I enjoy that part of the gig, right? And even in my role today, I still do that. So I'm kind of a player coach in that sense. And I, I don't think an MBA helps with that, right? Because you're learning about financial, you know, you're your pro forma models and economics and different things that have nothing to do with building a great product, right? So I, I totally get that. Now, I think if you've got an MBA who's going into a, a product leadership position, that's much different. And that's sort of where I am today, right? So understand, understanding just simple concepts, ROI, right? And being able to communicate effectively, having good presentation skills, which I didn't always have. And I think the MBA helped me to some extent. I don't see where those are downsides to being able to perform at that level, right? So I think an MBA is much more beneficial as you, you know, if you want to, if, as you climb that product ladder. But again, I don't think it precludes you from being a, an effective product manager at the same time, if you're willing to take on that role of product owner and a scrum team. And I have met, again, I've met MBAs who've been fine with that role. And maybe doing strategy and other things alongside it, right? But I've also met a lot of people who didn't have any business background, but still kind of had this perception of product management as I'm going to kind of write on this sacred scroll what I think the product should look like. <laughs> and a team's going to go build it. And then they're going to come knock on my door when it's done. And, and that part I feel like can be really, really toxic and, and you know, it doesn't result in a great product, frankly. No, absolutely. I think one thing that I'd say, and I read a book actually a short while ago called The Personal MBA, which is like just one a book that claims to give you all of the knowledge that an MBA would give you, which clearly is a very bold claim for any book. And I don't necessarily think that it did do that, but it was obviously a really good grounding in all of the different areas of business, most of which, you know, I've been around in business and working for like 25 years now. So I've I've seen a few things in my time and obviously most of the concepts apart from the really hairy details of finance are things that I'm pretty okay with anyway. Right. And I think that for me is when it comes to MBAs and clearly I don't have an MBA, so I'm not necessarily equipped to talk about the specific benefits or what I would have been able to do differently if I had one. But it feels to me like if an MBA is the start of your journey as with, with any degree or with any qualification, right? It's like I always equate it to a driving test. There's this cliche in the UK, I don't know if it translates over to the US as well, but like you learn to drive the day after you pass your driving test. Right. And it's like, it's important to know all the principles. It's important to know the practices. But if you think all of a sudden that you can, you know, be a Formula One driver or, you know, any 500 or whatever, then that's crazy talk. Yeah. And I think yeah. that maybe the, the blowback against MBAs comes from people who do have that attitude. Like maybe some of the types of people that do go to get MBAs come out of that thinking that they're solid gold yeah walking into companies and exhibiting those behaviors that you express dissatisfaction with and then just giving everyone a bad name so maybe it's just that you've come out of it obviously really grounded and using it as a supplement to your experience but some of the other people will basically come out think they're god's gift and just make everyone else look bad that's where we've got to right 
Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that happens. I would hope, and I, I, this is where I don't. I mean, it's been almost 10 years since I, <laughs> I was in school for business school, but I, I, I wonder how much of that perception of an MBA goes back decades, right? To the, yeah, you know, maybe even 80s, 90s when, when it was a little more, I don't know, more, more of a cutthroat, like <laughs> profit loss type type thing and you get out of there and all of a sudden it's like, well, I'm running a product line, right? And this is how I'm going to look at the product line and unit metrics and all all of that stuff, unit economics and, and everything else. I could see where that could be dangerous. But yeah, from from my experiences, that's a that's different than the product manager today, which is someone and maybe this is more of a SaaS, right? Tech product versus I'm running a I'm a product manager for a sneaker line, right? I'm not going to sit yeah in a factory every day and, and build sneakers together, right? That's someone, that's another team that's going to do that strictly. So there could be an element of that too. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, maybe we should all go and do a new MBAs and see what it's like these days. It's good. It's true. That'd be a good test. <laughs> <laughs> we also spoke before this about your dislike of the obsession with experimentation. I'm pretty sure you maybe had a bit of a ding dong with another product thought leader on that one on Twitter as well. Jana. You're going to get me in trouble with all these people that I really respect. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but you're really picking your fights with these people, obviously. <laughs> and that's obviously a really Boston thing to do as well, though, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's how we are in New England. But surely part of the point of product management and lean startup thinking and being agile is all about experimenting and MVPing our way to success rather than just kind of sticking what we've got. I mean, isn't that really what experimentation means? Just trying things and seeing if they work? I mean, what's wrong with that? I think that's true, right? I mean, a, a good experiment uh, can go a long way for sure. You know, at Intuit, I remember, uh, and I wasn't in this division, but I heard stories that TurboTax would, you know, move its its uh, button on a screen four inches and, and roll <laughs> that out for 1% of 1% of customers or users and really see if it moved the needle on their success metrics. So, I mean, those types of things make all the sense in the world to me, but that's a little bit different, right? That's that's going back and making sure that the product you have today is actually going to perform the way it should and really optimizing a feature that already exists or uh, an experience that already exists. And I think that's true. And, and, and yeah, I, obviously, I, I follow uh, Jenna and I really appreciate what she does for the product community. And it's not just her, right? I think I responded to maybe a tweet on, on, of Jana's, but I see it all the time. <laughs> hey, let's run more experiments and do, you know, and, and build less features. And I think the build less features thing is really important. I was I was chatting with an executive at a, uh, I'll just say a Martech company that has been doing pretty well over the last few years, and they're running into trouble now. And he said we built too much. We we got so good at building product and releasing it that now we're over our heads. And if you go yep. to any review site, I'm not going to name them, but if you go to a review site or if you go to even Glassdoor and look at employee reviews, it's our products falling down, right? And yeah. and we can't keep up. And now we got to put out those fires, but we also have other things we want to do. And I, I completely agree with feature overload where, where, my, where my hesitation around experimentation is, is it feels like it's almost taking the place of discovery, right? And, and now... I'm hearing, well, a survey could be an experiment. To me, that's like, well, that's not really true, right? And, and what I've heard from other folks is like, but sometimes you kind of have to build something, whether you want to call it a new feature or a feature or changing what you have today. You've got to put some developer uh, time into building in that, even moving the button four inches, right? 
that's a commitment that you're making with your development team and being able to test it thoroughly. And you have to be very transparent with the team that we want to run this experiment. We think it's going to move the needle. But I guess where I get a little bit skeptical (laughs) is I would have a hard time walking into the scrum room every week and saying we're running a new experiment. And I don't know, Jason, if you have a reaction to that, like, I mean, you've done this for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, we, my current company make APIs for banks. So (laughs) banks aren't really the types of people that want to spend lots of time experimenting with fun features that we felt about. So I think for me, it's about trying to do the smallest amount of work possible to see how far your solution could take you. Now, maybe some people would call that an experiment. I've certainly been in situations in the past where the smallest amount of work you could do is weeks or months worth of work, and that starts to feel like a bit of a commitment, like you say. But if I'm in a situation where I can do a couple of weeks worth of work, four weeks worth of work to pull something up, which demonstrates some value, which we can then take out to people and test with them, I think I'm okay with that. But again, no one of our client base wants us to be changing, even for 1% of the customers, anything without telling them first, because this is a deep integration with their banking systems. I think maybe, and I think I said this in the talk I gave a while back, it's like, if you've got a million effectively individually low value users, you can pretty much experiment on them as much as you want, right? Because ultimately, you've got the volume. I think there's quite a lot of product management where you don't have the luxury of being able to do the four pixel button movement or the changing of the color or anything like that. It's just, I think there's definitely a place for it. I just think you really have to be very purposeful about it and not just do it because you saw it in some article or something like that. Yeah, no, I I definitely think you're right. I mean, I think it depends on the company. And if you're a consumer app and you're maybe looking to do something, it could be a a lower lower lift. But I I guess my fear, right, is that our our product manager is going to shift to this experiment model versus doing really good discovery and understanding what is it that customers actually want. I'm in favor of some experiments. I was at a Two stops ago, I was at a company and we were building a new analytics report. And it doesn't sound like that would be a key product, but the way we had positioned it, we thought this was going to be a significant driver of revenue, this analytics report. And we were going to go off and build it. And we had very, very strict timelines that were coming very soon and, and had to scramble. And that, that means discovery and mock-ups and putting something out there quickly to, to go sell. And what I had pitched to my the management team, and it got rejected, and maybe it wasn't the right decision, but it's an example of an experiment, which is, well, why don't we go and, and take the customer's data and just build something out of Excel, right? And, and maybe you dress it up a little bit and you make sure, you know, maybe it ends up living somewhere else. But what if we just delivered them this, this report in a PDF format in Excel and seeing if it drives value, right? And, and given the nature of what we were trying to build, that, that would have probably worked as far as a deliverable. That way, if it's not what they want, or if there's something else, we don't now have to throw away the coding that we did or the engineering work we did. It's less of a lift to do this manually in Excel for, for the first few customers. And this isn't a novel concept. You know, Doing things that don't scale has become pretty popular in the product yeah. space, right? Yeah. I think doing things that don't scale is absolutely fair enough. I think the problem is if you can't escape that, then you get into trouble, right? So it's very fair to either start with your MVP and have a concierge behind it or something like that that's doing a lot of the lifting because you didn't build that bit yet. And that's absolutely a fair model. But I think if you end up then trying to scale a business based off the back of that, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. Right. 
you need to have a plan. Are you saying basically have a plan beyond? Yeah, you need like an escape plan of some sort, or I guess you have to basically be in a situation where you're comfortable basically being at best a mixed services and product business, or maybe just a full services business because actually you've decided that the revenue model that you have or the scaling plans that you have don't really support the product version of yourself and that actually you're happy being the professional services version of yourself. And there's plenty of fine professional services businesses out there. It's just a different model, right? So you have to make that call. And I think that the way I've seen it described before is that either of those things is a fine outcome, but just decide properly. Don't stumble into one or the other. Know know where you are and go where you're going, but go on purpose. Completely agree. Yeah. But you also called out agile done incorrectly. Now, we don't have to look too far online to find examples of people dumping on Scrum or dumping on Agile or dumping on Kanban or dumping on whatever the new framework is this week. Safe. I've, you, you've dumped a lot on Safe recently. Well, I don't really like Safe. <laughs> but, you know, I don't necessarily even count that as Agile, but yeah, obviously at the, at the same time, I appreciate that based on some of the comments that I've seen from people that I've chatted to about it, it's like, sure, maybe it's not as amazing as some people think it is, but at the same time, it might still be better than some of the alternatives i.e. massive long waterfalls and stuff like that. But either way, I mean, ultimately, and I'm probably just as guilty of this as anyone because I've not got a solution for safe. I've not got a replacement for safe. And most of the people that are calling out problems with Scrum or problems with Agile or problems with any of this stuff, they moan about it, but they don't really have a solution. But what do you mean when you say Agile done incorrectly? And what problem do you have with it? Yeah, I mean, so... Rather than you know complaining about some of the thought leaders and product, I'll, <laughs> I'll complain about myself on this one. It took me a long time to to learn this and to and I'm still trying to get it right. Which is one of the I don't have it in front of me. One one of one of the underlying principles of you know, if you believe in agile, right? The agile manifesto was well, was something like client collaboration or customer collaboration over uh, contracts. I think it was. Yeah, customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And I love that one. And and I, I think it's really important that, you know, we're not the way I look at it is that we don't do scrum and, and really every company I've been at, for the most part, we've done scrum in different flavors and variations. But we're we're not doing this just so we can release code every two weeks. We're doing this so that we can build something that's what's the word demonstrable? Is that am I saying that right? That's a good word. Yeah. That we can demo to our, our customers and get their feedback, right? And again, this is where I, <laughs> this goes to our last topic. I disagree a little bit about, you know, is that an experiment? Yes, but it, it does require a little bit of coding to, to get that out in front of customers. And maybe we did it wrong. We need to tweak it, right? But hopefully we've done enough discovery to get it right. But the, the important thing is if we've done it right or, you know, or even partially right, we can release that and the customer is going to get value out of it not soon after, or not too long after. Where I've stumbled at the start of my product career was we weren't really bringing customers along for the ride. We didn't have fleshed out beta programs. We didn't have communities we could draw on, or at least we weren't leveraging those communities. And it wasn't until I joined Validity 2018 or so when I realized, well, wait a minute, we've got a very, very tight community of users and they're close to each other as Salesforce administrators who I didn't know are a very, very tight community, which is great. And if you ask any of them for help, they're like, yeah, when, today? Like, I can help right now. I'll drop what I'm doing. I mean, it was an amazing situation that landed in our lap. And because we had that, 
that accessibility, I suppose, or access to to this customer set, we could build all these programs. So we started Validity Labs and we, you know, built it inside of Salesforce and customers could opt in and we marketed to them and we sent them swag. And anytime we had a question, even around naming, like the most minor things, we could just go pull them, right? We could do some quick discovery. We could get a panel together, right? And have almost like a customer advocacy group almost on the fly. And I I understand not every company has this at their disposal. I mean, Jason, you mentioned the banking industry. That might be far different. I have no idea. That could be much different. But with this group, we were able to leverage that and it made it so much easier to build product and get it out there and get it right and alter that direction if we were going in the wrong the wrong way. So now when I think of Agile, I don't really just think about it as, okay, two-week sprints. We're going to do sprint planning and grooming. And getting in my career, that's where I spend all my time is how do we get our ceremonies right? And how are retros going? And are people, you know, are we unblocking the developers? All of that is critical. But I was leaving out arguably the most important part was, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Do we have customers here at the table with us virtually? <laughs> I mean, our customers actually going to see this code and give us feedback on the fly. Yeah, I think I did tweet once, actually, one of my many unsuccessful tweets, which was like <laughs> something along the lines of, I've never had a customer ask me to see my burn down chart. <laughs> That's great. Because of course I haven't. Yeah, no one cares. Like, obviously, there has to be some level of process to build software because you can't just all run around in different directions and you need to have something to come together around. I think we both agree that that something is the value that you deliver at the end of it. And I think that things like two-week sprints and the ceremonies and story points and burn downs and stuff like that, they're useful to a point, but that point has to be focused on the value. And if you don't deliver that value, it doesn't matter what your burn down looks like. It doesn't matter how many points you did. It doesn't matter if you're above or below or if you under-delivered or over-delivered on what you thought you committed. Because ultimately, if you don't deliver something that is going to benefit the customer in some way, then you might as well not have done those last two perfect weeks, right? That's why I get kind of cross with Scrum fundamentalists now. Yeah, we do Scrum as well. I've always done Scrum in any of the development that we've done. Being fundamentalist about Scrum for me is, I don't think it really belongs anywhere outside of your Scrum certification. If you're foolish enough to go and get one of those, it's like, you don't need that. I mean, the whole point about agility is around being able to inspect and adapt, right? Exactly. And I don't believe that inspecting and adapting is something that's well served by being fundamentalist about any kind of framework, however good that framework is. Yeah. And we were, you know, essentially, we were releasing code on an agile cadence, but we were working with customers in a waterfall sense, right? We were talking to them at the beginning. We were going off and spending, you know, several sprints building it, and then we'd get a beta program going. So we weren't, you know, doing the worst job in the world. But we didn't have the kind of predictability around the product that allowed us to do that, right? We needed those check-ins with customers. So, you know, that whole, I don't know what you want to call it, customer ops or community ops and and really getting a program going where you can make it easy and and get engineers and get salespeople, whoever might want to be in that room with you alongside the customer and getting feedback, really, really important. Uh, 100%. Well, speaking of feedback... Where can people get in touch with you if they want to speak to you after this about anything they've heard here or just reach out in general? Yeah, LinkedIn always works. I'm over there. I'm on on Twitter as well. And if you're interested in launch day, we'd love to work with you. Like I said, we're being we're staying really close to our first several customers and launchdayapp.com or 
john at launchdayapp.com works too. And we'd love to work with you. You always know that you're one of the early team members when you've got just your first name at the email address, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Cool. I'll uh, link those into the show notes and obviously hopefully get a few people coming over and trying to find out more. Uh, Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience, your background, some of your thoughts and some of the controversies that we might try and stoke around some of this stuff. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Jason, this was great. Thanks so much for having me on. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the conversation inspiring and insightful. If you did, I'd love it if you could share it with your friends on social media, pop to the website onenightinproduct.com and sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you and they never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.